here at Alder Road in my uh, very long association now with this church uh, and uh, uh, great to, to be back uh, for this summer booking which uh, seems to become a, a regular feature. I've got promoted this year, I'm doing two Sundays. So I have, a, I have this Sunday and next Sunday. So I've decided to um, uh, actually link uh, two messages in a way. So uh, I'm going to talk to you about the world. And today I'm going to talk to you about our responsibility to this world. And then next Sunday, uh, I'm going to talk about the renewal of the world. Now, I, I know that this is holiday season, uh, people are away, and uh, um, I know you've got young people coming back from New Day. I hear they've had a great time. It's, I've heard from your youth group up at uh, New Day. Um, so, obviously, these two messages do stand alone as well, but they do also link. Uh, so, it's responsibility to our world this week and a renewal of our world next week. So, if you're here for both weeks, you'll get both parts of the series. Uh, and we're going to go today to Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 15. I think this will come up on the screen. Yes, I'm, I'm maybe I'm. What are you using? I'm using NIV, most modern translation. Is that the? Yes. You think we're on the? Uh, we'll get a similarity. Uh, so Colossians 1:15 to 22. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by God's physical body, by, sorry, by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, I don't know if there is a word that jumps out of you, out to you, uh, out of this passage, because it's a word that's constantly used and repeated in this passage, but it's the simple word, things. Uh, and actually, uh, in the verses I've just read, the word things is used eight times, and mostly it's all things. And if you've got uh, the passage up there still, you'll, you'll see that, mostly it's all things. Now, what are things? Well, things are just things, aren't they? Uh, so, uh, we go now and we say, well, I'll get my things. Or we might say, I've got a cupboard or a drawer that's full of old things. Uh, we use the word things in an almost dismissive way. Uh, it's almost as though we don't want to identify uh, with what we've got. And so, what's in your case? Uh, well, I've got uh, some clothes, I've got some books, and I've got a few other things. Uh, we don't want to kind of identify what the things are. That's how we tend to speak. Now, I say that because when we read here about all things, it may not resonate very strongly, uh, because the word things is just kind of things. And so, reading here all things, it may not actually strike you in any very particular way. So, I need to point out that in the New Testament... This phrase, all things, is enormously important. 
because actually it refers to the, the whole of the created universe. Actually, the interesting thing is this, that having used the word things so constantly in this uh, reading, the word things doesn't appear in the Greek text at all because there isn't a Greek word for things. Uh, and we actually have to put it in to make sense. And so when we read about all things, what we're literally reading is the all. But we can't just say the all. Uh, and so we have to translate it as all things. Now, just how important this is, I'll illustrate uh, a bit to you. So in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, Jesus is speaking, and he says to his disciples, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things. So Jesus is speaking about the renewal of the, the whole universe, the whole of creation, which I'm going to speak about really more next week. Uh, Jesus speaks about the renewal of all things. Literally, he talks about the renewal of the all, but we have to say the renewal of all things. Jesus said that. And then if you go to Ephesians chapter 1, <coughs> verses 9 and 10, there's a very important statement which includes the phrase all things. Uh, Paul says, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times would have reached their fulfillment to bring together all things in heaven and on earth under Jesus Christ. And so Paul's speaking about the end of the age there when everything will be brought back into perfect harmony and unity. All things brought back to unity uh, in heaven and on earth under Christ. And then if you come to this passage here in Colossians chapter 1, let me just pick up a few of the all things phrases. You see it there at the beginning of verse 16. For in Christ all things were created. Uh, again, all things have been created through him and for him. You go to verse 17, in him all things hold together. You go to verse 18, that's in it says in my translation, everything, but again, it's all things, so that in all things he might have the supremacy. You go to verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And so you get this phrase used again and again in the New Testament, and whereas to us things can mean just any old thing, actually in the New Testament all things is a majestic phrase. It refers to all that God has created in the entire universe, from the invisible atom to the largest star. So, we need to begin, I think, with a sense of awe and wonder. For to talk of all things means considering what God has done. Uh, before the beginning, there was no time and there were no things. Then, in the beginning, God spoke, and all things came into existence. And I think it's probably as we look around at what we might call the natural world that we most feel the sense of awe and wonder considering what God has actually done. Uh, I'm sure some of you uh, watch Brian Cox on television. I gather the ladies particularly watch Brian Cox on television. Uh, but Brian Cox, who's this kind of super uh, scientist, has a lot of television programs, he, he's a, a professed atheist, <coughs> but I notice that whenever he talks about the natural world, he cannot fail to express a sense of awe and wonder. And so whether he's talking about billions of stars 
or whether he's talking about the uniqueness of a snowflake, you can hear it in his voice. He actually says it sometimes. Isn't this wonderful? But we don't live BC, which is borrowing Cox, right? We live by faith. And we live with faith that God spoke and all things came into existence. In Hebrews it says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. God spoke and out of invisibility God brought into being all things that now exist. Let me tell you, the only other option to that is also an option which requires faith. The belief that nothing created all things out of nothing. And that's the only other option that you have with regard to creation. You see some of those photographs from Tim Peake. You remember Tim Peake a few weeks ago, our astronaut uh, up there going around uh, for six months in, in space, and he would be photographing sunrises and sunsets over the Earth particularly as the spacecraft uh, uh, moved around in its orbit. And again, you could see uh, these wonderful pictures, and you, you could just sense the, the majesty and the awe and wonder of it all that Tim Peake was viewing. Well, what are all things doing, especially when we consider the heavens as well as the earth. Well, the Bible tells us in Psalm chapter 19 and verse 1, Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And let me just remind you of a few facts uh, to bring that home to you. We live on a planet, which is uh, not a very large planet, it's called Earth, and uh, we live within a solar system, and that solar system uh, means that there is a sun, which is actually a star, and there are some eight or nine planets that go round the sun in our solar system. I say eight or nine because the scientists are still arguing as to whether Pluto is, strictly speaking, a planet. But we're one of eight or nine planets that orbit the sun. And uh, Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system. And, of course, Jupiter has recently been in the news because you probably remember that the Americans have launched a, a space probe to actually examine uh, Jupiter right at this time. Now, our sun, our star, is 93 million miles away from us, which is significant because it is just right. If it was any closer to us, we'd all be cremated, and if it was any further away from us, we'd all be frozen. But it's in exactly the right place. And the next nearest star or sun to us, well, you could reach that in about four and a half years, but you would have to travel at the speed of light to do it, which is 186,000 miles a second. Now, our solar system is within a galaxy which is called the Milky Way. And remember, we have a sun which is a star, but in our one galaxy, there are actually 100 to 400 billion stars. Now, you might say, well, that's a bit approximate, isn't it? But when you're counting billions, it's a bit difficult to make it exact. Uh, I love the way that Abraham uh, is once addressed by God. You can read it in Genesis, and God says to Abraham, count the stars if you're able. <laughs> I love that. Uh, 
And uh, our, our galaxy is known as the Milky Way, and actually, if you want to cross the, the Milky Way on one particular holiday, go from right, right one end to the other, that will take you 180,000 years, uh, but again, you'll have to do it at the speed of light, or 186,000 miles a second. But hear this, the Milky Way is only one of billions of galaxies. And the nearest big galaxy to our Milky Way, it's actually four times the size of the Milky Way, that would take you two million years to reach, the nearest one. Again, if you're traveling at the speed of light. However, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is going to collide with that galaxy in five billion years' time, so that might be worth waking up for. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> The largest planet in our solar system is Jupiter, which is a thousand times the size of the Earth. But hear this, even with Jupiter and the other uh, eight or seven or eight planets in our solar system, actually 99.85% of all matter in our solar system is contained in the sun. And if that doesn't make you feel rather small... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what will. It's quite extraordinary when you start to hear these statistics about the heavens. Friends, we need to consider what God has made. All right? The heavens declare the glory of God. And it ought to give us a sense of awe and wonder. I love it how in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 16, where the Bible is describing creation and uh, uh, the animals and uh, the things that God is doing, and then <laughs> there in verse 16, it suddenly says, and he also made the stars. You know, just a throwaway comment. <laughs> just made the stars as well. <laughs> a few years ago, I was listening to a <coughs> radio interview with a scientist. And apparently, according to the scientist, the, 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 the astronomers, they, they now don't look at the stars so much as listen to the stars. Because apparently, they can get far more information by listening to the stars than they can by putting up a telescope and trying to actually look at them. So they listen rather than look. And every star has its own distinct noise. And they had recordings uh, there, and he played some of these recordings that the stars uh, were making, the noises that they were making. It was actually quite moving. And I'm listening to this, <coughs> and I'm thinking, hey, that's in the Bible somewhere. And believe me, it is, because in Job 28 and verse 7, it says, while the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Singing stars. And the scientists agree that they do. It should give us that sense of awe and wonder. And then this, God knows each star. In Psalm 147 verse 4 it says this, He determines the number of the stars and he calls them each by name. Do you know, there are so many stars and so many planets that the scientists can't possibly name them. They call them things like MH1378, all right? But God has... Oh, thanks so much. Why don't you get a shelf on this? I'm always complaining that, <laughs> that lecterns never have shelves. Do you know, I was... I was, I, I was uh, excuse me a moment, well, I have a little insert here. I was uh, 24 years at Church of Christ the King in Brighton, and so we had a... We had, a, we had a terrible little lectern, and then uh, probably about five years before I left, we, we replaced the lectern, and it was one of these sort of lecterns, and it didn't have a shelf. Well, I couldn't believe it, you know. Preachers need to take things up into, on the platform. They need smarties, they need glasses of water, they need all sorts of things, you know, put on a shelf. So when I did a return visit there, I picked up a bottle of water and simply dropped it on the ground to make the point. 
which I won't do. Okay, all right. So, so uh, where were we? We're talking about, yes, the stars that have got names. Okay, but God has a name for each star. <laughs> I wonder what the names are. Perhaps one day we'll know. But the heavens declare the glory of God. And the wonder of all the things that God has made shall fill us with a sense of awe and wonder. Cut this uh, from our garden this morning. My wife's a very keen gardener. She's passed it on to her son. You might know that. And uh, uh, my wife has been growing this beautiful rose in our garden. But the reason that my wife is able to grow this rose is actually because God's created it. So whether it's the billions of stars that God has made or this beautiful rose, I think it should fill us with a sense of awe and wonder. All things that God has made. Let me move on and talk about life and abundance. Jesus once said he comes to give us abundant life, life in all its fullness. Now, you can have quite a superficial take on that, and I've sometimes found Christians do, as though having life uh, in all its uh, fullness or abundant life means that we're always going to have a good time. Let me tell you about one expression that I really object to. Have you noticed these days that everything has to be fun? Uh, and uh, it seems to be a kind of prerequisite of anything that anybody does these days, it's going to be fun. And so you get this definition that comes out that church is fun. Now, I've got real problems with that. Let me be very clear about this. I believe you can have fun in the church, no doubt about that. If you've got a barbecue next week, beach barbecue, or whatever you're having next week, I'm sure that will be fun. So certainly, as Christians, we can have fun, and I'm sure as Christians, we have the greatest fun, and you can have fun in the church. But I think it's a definition to say church is fun when you consider what's happening in places like Syria and North Korea and Afghanistan to Christians today. I've got a real objection to that phrase. I think we need to be a bit careful uh, about that. We need to go a bit deeper here and see that even amid troubles and challenges and difficult circumstances, it is our identity in Christ that gives us the fullness, the abundance, and the joy that we can have. Uh, I wonder how you felt about the referendum. Uh, I, you know, it's produced quite strong feeling, didn't it? Uh, surprisingly strong feeling. I, you know, it seemed to me that uh, the next couple of days, I think it was a sense of shock, uh, and uh, obviously some people were very pleased, some people were very distressed uh, about the result. Let me say, my friends, we must understand that even in something like that, whether we're in the EU or out of the EU, for us as Christians, that's not our identity. Our identity is that we are in Christ, in the EU or out of the EU, that we're sons and daughters of the living God, so that in or out we can have full and abundant life. But also this, abundant life means that life is what God gives to us. Therefore, life should be respected, enjoyed, and rejoiced over. Remember again, God has created all things. And therefore, life is given to us by God. And you and I need, therefore, to rejoice in life in all its richness and diversity. And I want to be very practical about this. Can I say for one thing, what that means is that we must absolutely abhor all racism. I, I've uh, got a letter here that was written by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King while he was in prison on one occasion. Now, I know he's, he's most famous for his, his oratory and speech, and I have a dream, but this is a, an extract from a letter he actually wrote from prison. 
uh, and he was wanting to express his frustration when people said, you've still got to wait patiently in order to get uh, uh, the civil rights that you want. And this is what he wrote. He says, perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, this is written in the 1960s. Right? You think, what's happening at the moment? And when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers, and this is not me writing this, this is Martin Luther King, so I know that word's not politically correct today, but this is what he wrote. And when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, and when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering <coughs> as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that Fun Town is closed to coloured children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. And when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? And when you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your car because no motel will accept you, and when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title missus, and when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, and when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremist we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Something that's powerful and just so relevant. But listen to Paul 2,000 years ago in this same letter in Colossians 3 in verse 11. Here, he says, and here means in the church. Here in the church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. 
And Paul said, here in the church, there are no barriers to separate us. There's not to be Jew and Gentile. There's not to be ritual things like circumcised or uncircumcised. Even people like the barbarians and the Scythians considered even worse than the barbarians, whether you're slave or free. Here in the church, Christ is in us all, and Christ is all that matters. And there is not to be any hint of racism here in the church. Now, we can all be racist, whatever color we are. And so I've been in South Africa during the days of dying days of apartheid and seeing signs that said whites only, absolutely appalling. But I've also been in other African countries where tribalism is rife and the members of one tribe absolutely loathe and hate the members of another tribe. Why? Simply because they are another tribe. Friends, not in the church. And again, as we think of the God who's created all things that's given us life, I have to say, I, I have to say this, we cannot be passive about poverty. Now, this is a vast subject. Jesus said, you always have the poor with you. I wonder how you treat that statement. Well, we've always got the poor around, so get used to it. Or is Jesus saying, you've always got the poor around, what are you going to do about it? For God created all things. And he's given us life, and we cannot close our ears to the cry of the poor. And the Bible is very strong on this. Listen to Amos. This is Amos 5, verse 8. He who made Pleiades and Orion, the God who made all things, and Pleiades and Orion are constellations in the heavens. He who made Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the, the land. The Lord is his name. The Lord who has created all things. But then he turns on those who oppress the poor. And he continues this way. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. And uh, he absolutely pours out his, his wrath, really, against those who oppress and despise the poor. You know, to be poor often means to be without power. And that's why in churches like ours, we do work with those who are homeless, without power. And we do work with women in refuges who've been abused, who are without power. We now live in such an unequal world that one large bus can contain the number of people that have as much wealth between them as the poorest half of the world's population. I mean, how shocking is that? 62 people in the world have as got as much money and wealth as the poorest 3.5 billion. Let me read to you a, uh, a, a verse from Revelation. This is Revelation verse 6. And uh, we're reading about the opening of the seven seals. And in Revelation 6, verse 5 and 6, this is what we read. The Lamb opened the third seal. And I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages, and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Do you know what that symbolizes? It symbolizes famine. 
because that's the cost, an extortionate cost, to get wheat uh, and food uh, in a time of famine. But do not damage the oil and the wine. What does that mean? You know, in times of famine, there are always some people who got luxury goods. And the oil and the wine actually represents luxury goods. And so there's famine, but people say, don't touch the oil and wine. You know, I want to keep my luxury goods. Let me tell you this, my friends. We've got the oil and the wine compared with the rest of the world. What will we do? I mean, for some of us, it means we will literally get our hands dirty. We will be dealing with the homeless. We will be getting to women's refuges. Refugi- refuges. I know that's what some of us are doing. For some of us, we need to target our prayers specifically on some area which is serving the poor and the powerless. For some of us, it means that we're going to give. Now, please forgive me for saying this. I'm only saying it to say that I identify with this. I'm not just trying to throw this stuff at you. But beyond my tithe, the tithe that we give to the church at Citygate, we feel very passionately as a couple about all these women who are being trafficked from Eastern Europe at the present time and brought into prostitution in Western Europe. And so we actually support the work of Tear Fund in trying to combat uh, that uh, sexual trafficking and slavery that is taking place at the present time. And also this, I fear we forget the abortion issue. We've got so familiar with it, we get used to it. I feel that myself, we get used to it. God has created all things. He's given us life. And now we live in a world where in the same hospital it's possible to have doctors who are working as hard as they can to save a very premature baby and at the same time to end the life of the baby who's the same age but in the womb of its mother, but it's inconvenient. It's been said the most dangerous place to be for a baby in this world today is in its mother's womb. You know, where is our fight for the poor? For God has created all things and he gives us life and abundance. We do have a responsibility there. Right, I'm going to change gear and talk about bins and compost. (laughs) I wonder if you'd identify with my lifestyle in any way as I run through this very quickly. We have in our kitchen a small plastic box uh, into which we put all our uncooked food waste. This is vegetable peelings and bits of salad that I've managed to avoid eating. It all goes into this plastic box, which gets decanted into a bucket and eventually gets put into a compost bin out in our garden. And I just love it, really love it, when twice a year my wife says, time to empty the compost bin. That's just great, get all this compost. And we spread it around the garden, but the result is we grow this, okay, in our very poor soil, in our back garden. We've got another plastic box provided by Bournemouth Council. Into that we put cooked waste. And we eventually decant that into a bag that then goes into a bigger plastic box outside our house, which is collected by the excellent Bournemouth refuse collectors. And that turns into electricity, which is great. We have another plastic box, which is for dry goods and packaging and bottles and very few of those, of course, but we put those in, in, into there, and that eventually goes outside into another plastic bin, which is collected by the excellent Bournemouth Refuse men, and they are recycled uh, in order to produce, I should imagine, more plastic boxes so that you can keep the whole thing going. There's uh, another large box or bag that we use, uh, and uh, occasionally we make a trip to the Bournemouth Council tip, And at the present time, we're waiting to deliver things like an old clothesline, a broken bird table, and some old saucepans. 
And uh, when you go into the Bournemouth Council tip, they have a sign-up that said, last month we recycled 85% of all waste. And I feel so proud of Bournemouth Council and proud of my contribution uh, to that recycling. There is a bad story. We have another bin in the kitchen uh, into which uh, uh, we place uh, all other rubbish, which eventually uh, goes out to another outside bin, which is also collected, and that goes to landfill and produces methane gas, and that's the methane gas, and that's a bad story. Now, there are a couple of challenges here. One challenge is this. I can't believe how much rubbish two people in one house are able to produce. The other thing is that if you come and stay in our house for a holiday, which often happens when we're away on holiday, we have to give you a week's orientation course on how to recycle rubbish. But God has created all things, and God loves all that he has made and has given to us a sense of responsibility for all that he has made. Now listen to God dealing with Adam. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. In other words, a charge is given to men and women to take care of the all things that God has made. Now, some years ago, I read a book called Destined for the Throne. And in this book, what the author was actually seeking to get across is basically that you and I, as Christian believers, are in training for reigning, that we're co-heirs with Christ. And so one day, we're going to reign with Christ on a renewed earth, more of which next week. And we're going to do that when God restores to perfection all things, his whole creation. But now, at the present, we're in training for reigning. And so to take care of all things that God has made means for us that we're as serious about recycling our rubbish as a biblical conviction as we are about the needs of the poor and an abhorrence of racism. Let me just warn you, there are two dangers here. One danger is this. It is God who is going to save the planet. And it says that in Colossians 1.20, in this passage here. Uh, through him, through Christ, God is going to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That's plural, in the heavens. So it's God who is actually going to save the planet. And the result is... When people see that God is going to save the planet, what they can do is become casual and simply don't bother. Oh, well, God is going to save the planet. doesn't matter how we live. We can squander resources. doesn't matter about litter and all that kind of thing. Hey, you and I are in training for reigning. <laughs> Let's remember that. But there's the other challenge, which is this, that we try and save the planet on our own. Can I say there are people who can become total bores about the environment. Now, if as a Christian, and out of Christian conviction, you want to join the Green Party or some environmental group, then genuinely, God bless you. And I honor that. But you can become a complete bore about it. Let me tell you this true story. I have known people who have decided to change churches and squander the spiritual heritage that they've had in the church where they've been blessed and where their children have been blessed and where they've grown up in God to go to another church which is not going to bless them so much but happens to be nearer and will actually save their carbon footprint. For goodness sake, get a life, I say. All right? It's unreal. Friends, God is going to save the planet, not us. But we are in training for reigning. Now, let me speak last of all a bit about hope 
and renewable. I'm going to pick this up in more detail next week. And I want to bring you back to this passage that uh, I read this morning. I want, in fact, to go up again, please. And I just want to take you very quickly through this passage once again. I'm going to read it once more and just uh, amplify it in a couple of places. It says, the sun is the image of the invisible God. Jesus perfectly reflects God the Father. He is the firstborn over all creation. Just be a bit careful about this expression, firstborn over all creation. The Jehovah's Witnesses love this because they say, ah, oh, this proves that actually there was a time when Jesus was created. He didn't live forever. He was created. It might have been ages and ages ago, but it says here clearly that he is the firstborn. And so there was a time when he wasn't, and then he was created. Now, actually, this Greek word, which is a lovely Greek word, I'd to say it, prototokos, lovely Greek word. Uh, this word, prototokos, is actually uh, a statement of title and role. And it's not referring to chronology. This has nothing to do about age or chronology. It all has to do about status. And firstborn, prototokos, actually means supremacy. So the sun is the image of the invisible God, the supreme one over all creation. Right? So that's what it actually means. For in Christ all things were created. So Jesus is himself the agency through whom everything that exists comes into being. Things in heaven, but it's plural in the Greek language, so it's things in the heavens, all right, the stars, the sun, the planets, things in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether you can see it because it's a rose or whether you can't see it because it's an angel, God has created it through the agency of Christ. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. There's nothing that's been created that hasn't been created through the agency of Jesus, and notice this, and for him. In fact, in Revelation chapter 4, it speaks of all creation being for his pleasure. And so everything that has been created actually brings pleasure to God. He, this is Christ, is before all things, all right? Before anything existed, Christ existed. And in him, in Christ, all things actually hold together. The reason that the, the planets go round the sun, the reason that the uh, universe works in the way that it does and holds together is because of the work of Jesus Christ. In him, all things that have been created hold together. And then this word of encouragement to us. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. All right? So, what was, it, what was before the beginning? God. But what was before God? Nothing. God is the beginning. Christ is the beginning. He always is. He's the beginning. And notice again, he's the firstborn, the prototokos from among the dead. Chronologically, Jesus wasn't firstborn from among the dead because Jesus raised people from the dead before he raised himself. Right? But he is supreme from among the dead. So Jesus, supreme from among the dead, so that in all things he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Everything of God is in Jesus Christ. And through him 
to reconcile to himself all things, everything that's been created, whether things on earth or things in the heavens. How? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, you and I make much of the blood of Christ. We make much of the death of Jesus Christ. We talk about the power of the blood and we tend to apply it to ourselves again and again. Why are we saved? Because of Jesus' death. What has cleansed us from our sin? It is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is also true. What has brought us back to God? It is the death and the blood of Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God. True, true, true. But this scripture here says there's going to come a time when all things in creation, everything that God has created, the heavens and the earth, are going to be regenerated, renewed, and reconciled to perfection in God. What could possibly do that? Only one power can do that, and that is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ which is going to reconcile not only people, but also the entire creation to himself. More on that next week. And then a word to us. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation the work of the death of Christ to reconcile you and me to God. Hope and renewal. Well, certainly, awe and wonder when we consider what God has made. Life and abundance. God has given us all life, which we should respect and honor and rejoice over. Bins and compost, okay? We have responsibilities in this world, and we are in training for reigning. Hope and renewal. Because when Christ comes again, he will bring the consummation of all things and all of creation will be reconciled to perfection and he will reign over it forever and ever and we will reign with him. Meanwhile, you and I have responsibility for this world. Next week, we'll talk about how the whole world is going to be renewed. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Father, we want to thank you today that uh, you're a God who calls us together to worship you, to serve you, uh, to love you, uh, to declare our praises to you. We, we recognize that we're a called out people, Lord, that you've called us out of darkness uh, into light and out of death into life, that we might declare the praises of our God and King. But Father, we thank you too that you've given us a present life and a present world to live in. And we thank you for the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of all things that you have made. And Father, when we consider just one rose, and when we consider the size of space and the billions of stars and the millions and trillions possibly of planets and beyond our ability to name, and yet you name all the stars, you know them by name. And when we consider the size of something like Jupiter, and know that's just one of uh, billions of planets that there are. And Lord, when we can look at some of these photographs from space and see the beauty of it and the marvel of it and the detail of it, and when we see it just there declaring the glory of God, we are filled with awe and wonder. But Father, we thank you. You've given us a world in which we do carry responsibility. And as you've given us life, we pray we may respect all life. Lord, we pray here in the church, not a hint of racism. Lord, here in the church, a real concern uh, for the cry of the poor. Lord, help us to understand our responsibilities, even at local levels, as we consider looking after our planet. And let that be a biblical conviction amongst us as well. But Lord, we, beyond that, live with hope 
that one day you're going to renew all things. And Father, a world that is presently frustrated and subject to corruption will be brought back to utter perfection. And Father, we thank you that you reconcile us through the blood of Christ and you're going to reconcile the entire universe through the blood of Christ. One power can do that, the power of the blood of Jesus. And we give you thanks in his name. Amen. Amen. And this morning in worship, I felt like God spoke to me and didn't